When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. A couple of years ago, a historian got in touch with me, a listener to history, got in touch with me from Norfolk and told me about the remarkable veteran living nearby. On the 23rd of July, 1943, Flight Lieutenant Steve Stevens flew on a deadly bombing raid over the German city of Essen. The minute he returned home, he made a recording of himself reliving the events of that night. And I was able to go and visit the 96-year-old Steve Stevens 75 years after he made that recording. And in this podcast, you'll hear parts of his original recording and also my conversation with him back in 2018. First broadcast at the time, but now bring it to you, a much larger audience, in 2021. Sadly, Steve Stevens is no longer with us. He passed away shortly after I was lucky enough to interview him. But his son, Adrian Stevens, has got in touch, and he has spent lockdown writing and publishing a beautiful book full of pictures telling the story of Steve Stevens' life. So please go and search Adrian Stevens' book on his father if you'd like to get any more detail. This is one of the more special podcasts that I've ever recorded. We also filmed this episode for History Hit TV. It's available on there now. Just go to historyhit.tv. You get 30 days free if you subscribe today. And then once you've subscribed for the price of a cappuccino every single month, you get access to the world's best history channel, all the podcasts without the ads, and hundreds of hours of history documentaries like this one about Steve Stevens. So we interviewed him 75 years on from that extraordinary recording that he made. He was an audio pioneer, Steve Stevens. He really is the forerunner to this podcast. Some of you get in touch to ask me how you can watch History Hit on your TV, your big screen. I managed to set up History Hit on my Android TV the other day. I've got a little projector. I can now watch myself projected onto the wall of my house or sipping a beer in my garden. Pretty weird behaviour, now they say it out loud. So anyway, that's the thing. It's never been easier. You just follow the instructions, you get a kind of QR code, you go to a special website, bang, 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 little code goes in. Before you know it, historyhit.tv is on your television. Sweet deal. Apple TV, Android, all sorts of places like that. Samsung US, coming to Samsung Europe in the next few weeks. It's all there, folks. It's never been easier. In the meantime, though, here's, a, I think, well, a pretty remarkable conversation with Steve Stevens a much-missed veteran of Bomber Command. In July 1943, 21-year-old Flight Lieutenant Steve Stevens had just completed another bombing raid for the RAF over occupied Europe. The target on that occasion had been Essen in the industrial heartland of the Ruhr. 
But after this raid, he did something different. He decided that while the adrenaline was rushing and while the memories were fresh, he would record an audio account of the raid. We believe this tape is unique. Why did you join the RAF? Well, uh, long before the war started, some friends and I knew that the war was coming because there were any relative children. And uh, so we, were, we went to join the ARP. And at that time, if bombs were dropped, they were the wardens, the air raid wardens who were on the spot, had rang into a report centre. And then from the report centre, you could send out heavy rescue parties, light rescue party, ambulance work, uh, police, and then unexploded bombs, all that sort of stuff. People had to be informed. So these, these lads and I, and we were only quite young, were, were put, because we learned a lot about this ARP, were put to a report centre, and uh, there we carried out our work, which was in the early days of the war quite exciting because bombs were not dropped very far from our area. And so you got reports saying there's a bomb at so-and-so, so many houses blown up, and then you would send what aid you, you could get your hands on. And they, um, we were all volunteers, so I used to go and work at night there without any pay at all. But I was going to work one night, and the lady next door said, Steve, would I have a cup of tea before you go? I said, splendid, because tea was rationed, you see. And so I stayed and had a cup of tea with this lady, and off I went. When I arrived at work, hadn't been sat down more than 10 minutes or so when a message came through that my own house had been bombed with my parents in it. And uh, so I couldn't go rushing back because obviously there was nobody else to take my place. So I had to wait there until uh, someone came to replace me about eight hours later. And when I came home, uh, it's awful, you know, cycling over the rubble, the smell of sewage, bits and pieces of glass, brickwork and all that sort of stuff lying about all over the place. And of course in the dark, because you showed as little light as possible. And when I arrived at my road, sure enough, there was a darn great gap where the house I'd left earlier that night had been. And my parents, who we lived in Devon, um, had brought with them a very big farmhouse table, which Johnny and I filled the living room. And uh, you could put leaves in it and wind a handle at the end and make it bigger. Really stout old job. And of course we had a piano there as well, which was also useful. Lots of people had pianos in those days. And as the, the house fell in, so my parents had dived under a table there and been sheltered from the wreckage. All except an uncle of mine, he was with them and he'd left a bit of a leg outside and that got broken. And uh, not only that, but when I arrived, I looked at the next door and the old lady who'd actually bought me tea just a few hours before was smashed into the side of the door, rather like some hideous graffiti. You've seen all these films where somebody goes splat. It's exactly it, except it was bloody and smelly. And that was the first thing I saw before I went to my own house. I expect to see my own parents in the same state. And so I stood outside and Look at the aircraft still buzzing about saying, you bastard, I'll get my own back on you one of these days. And that's exactly why I went into Bomber Command. 
I felt I was very lucky there because the select everybody wanted to be a Spitfire part of the course. We just had the Battle of Britain. I didn't mind being a Spitfire pilot, but I wanted to drop bloody great bombs on the bastards, get my own back for them. That was my feeling, and that's why I went in. And so uh, that was how I went into former command. And and you made tell me how um, you made this remarkable recording of one of your missions. Well, um, when I was a, I was a sergeant pilot and captain of Lancaster's. It's doing go for a long way now, in 1943. And uh, when I went to the sergeant's mess at Scampton, there were several veterans there from the First World War. And so there was a big age spread from the we relative youngsters who were uh, ser- quite young sergeants, really, and they were people who were grandparents, some of them. And they were very, very useful to us. They were always very kind. This intercommunication between relatively young sergeants or air crew and uh, the older people who were passing wisdom of ages on. And one of these chaps was a, uh, a interested radio. In fact, he was the, the expert, really. Although we did have a, an officer doing it, he had he was a chap with all the knowledge. This was not unusual. And uh, he, he was speaking one day and, he said, look, Steve, you know, when you come back one night or when you're somewhere away, he said, will you just call up the base? Uh, just, I just, I just check to see how far this particular alteration I've made to this radio, the TR9 it was called, would uh, go. Because at that time, our air-to-air uh, radio, except in fighter command, but it was a different sort of procedure, um, you could be almost on top of an aircraft and you couldn't talk to it. If you called up a particular code and the code was darky, if you were lost and you couldn't, weren't sure where you were and you said, hello darky, hello darky, hello darky, then someone there sitting in a flying control below would say, hello darky, this is Scampton, this is Wigsley, this is Grantham. They gave you the name of the station. Now, because you could hear the name of the station, you knew you were in three miles of it, and then you could start a square search looking for it when you were lost. So the disadvantage of a, a low range on these TR9s would turn down to an advantage if you were lost, and quite frequently we were. My, we all got lost in bat, bat breeding at all times, because uh, we didn't have any of this stuff we've got nowadays of knowing precisely what your ground position is. We really didn't. And uh, in the early days, of course, bomber command was a disaster from that point of view. They kept sending aircraft out and the navigators would do their best. But on ETA, the estimated time of arrival, they'd say to the pilot, well, can you send in below? And they'd drop the bombs and large numbers of bombs fell just all over the place. They didn't do any damage at all, really except the people, the air crew. <laughs> and uh, they, the pilots came back with stories which literally weren't true, but they deluded themselves because they hadn't seen anything like it before. So what, so what about, how did you come to, to put your voice on the tape? Well, uh, then after I, we were talking about this wire recording that the, this chap had been working on, this sergeant, and the CO said to me, he said, well, Steve, said, might be a good idea if you made a recording of what you know, you've been doing because it'd be useful for playing to new re- people who are trying to recruit, like university students and ATC people, they'd find that interesting. 
So that was how I made the first recording. And that was very similar to one I, I first sort of repeated now for you. And uh, so it, that was made on tape, on wire, I think, first of all. Then some of it was transferred to tape. How they did that, I don't know. And then we had tapes, quite thin things. I may have got a copy of one somewhere upstairs. And uh, then it became thicker, so they sort of standardised tape, which we used later on to do that. Then, of course, transferring to a disc of another generation. And uh, so that's how the whole thing happened, really. I made a recording on tape. And this then was a, a, an education recording, really, to interest. That's why it's told in the form of a story. This is the story of one Lancaster bomber taking part in one raid on the 25th of July, 1943. Scampton Airfield is just north of Lincoln. And on this particular day, aircraft of A, B and C flights of number 57 squadron were dispersed over the airfield. During the day, they have been thoroughly tested. Guns, ammunition, bomb sites, compasses, engines, wirelesses, oxygen supplies, petrol and oil have all been carefully inspected. You think it might be unique? Well, it was, yes, that's right. I don't think anybody else did that. I'm fairly certain they didn't. Certainly they weren't as close to the operation as I was, but that primarily it was designed just as a, well, perhaps a propaganda, perhaps for trying to take to interest. That's why it's told in the form of a story. Well, tell, tell me the story um, about, do you, do you remember to this day, do you remember that particular mission? Yes, um, it, I knew it was because uh, later on, I put the heading on this tape sometime later, and I knew it was the, the particular raid we did on Essen. Now, Essen, of course, was one of the places where Krupps had their huge manufacturing uh, processes going on. So I, I rightly say, well, tonight we're going to bomb Krupps was at Essen. That was what we were trying to do. At that time, of course, you weren't doing this on ETA and so on because we got mosquitoes coming over the top as sky markers and they were fixed either by radio beams or they almost automatically. So some of them had their bombs, I was told, I don't know this, dropped automatically. So their sky markers or markers that came down, we had two types, the ones that hit the ground and showed us various colours that was the position we were aiming at to drop our bombs when we went out to the target. And when you heard that you were, when you were told, right, you're going to Essen, yes. did your heart fall? Were there some places that were more dangerous than others? That's absolutely right. But the more dangerous, the bigger the cheer from the air crew concerned because you know, we all put on this act that we all sort of wanted to go, wanted to press on regardless, as we called it. It was good for morale. It was also good for ours because we thought, oh, well, the other people are sort of making this fuss, so we'll do the same. So we said, oh, we some jolly good. That's why they make these guns and so on. Wacko, we'll go, 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 sounding. That wasn't really what we wanted, of course. It was going to be a difficult target. And Essen was on the Ruhr Valley, and we called it Happy Valley. Not much happiness going on there at the time. But you knew it. You'd been there before. You knew the dangers. Did, did, how did you... How did you feel when you, when you got ready for that mission? Well, at the first one, I think, you felt fairly tense, but after a while, you took it for granted. When you heard you were going to Essen, you piled onto the aircraft. What's, what do you have to do around the aircraft before you take off? Well, 
you had to have everything prepared. I mean, first of all, you must remember all this was being done in the darkness of evening. It wasn't quite pitch dark. Sometimes it was, of course, pitch dark and raining. Uh, so you, every member of the uh, crew had to check his own particular speciality. And uh, like myself as the pilot, I, I, well, I usually wore a fairly light flying suit, uh, overall I'd got really. But uh, I also took a heavier one with me because if you were to hold the aircraft, it's damn cold outside. And the, the pilot's uh, sort of position was generally pretty well warm. But the, the uh, rear gunner, for example, now we'd also found that whatever we did at the rear gunner and however we cleaned his perspex, in a very short while it became clouded, partly because of some of the slavery coming back from the engines ourselves. It was swept round the back and onto the turret, and so it upset the, uh, the clarity of the perspex. And so a large panel had been taken out of the rear gunner's position, and, and of course, he could see more clearly, but it was bitterly cold. As a result, he was fitted up with an electrically heated suit and electrically heated, uh, even electrically heated socks, I think. But they were still jolly cold anyway. And uh, it's quite, I remember on one occasion when we came out, got out of the aircraft, that the actual gunner was having difficulty getting his, his helmet off because his helmet was actually frozen to the sweat on his forehead, so it was a, could be a pretty cold job. Did you, did you think when you were doing these checks, did you think about the fact that you might die in the next few hours? Yes. Um, I, I, oh, as a matter of fact, have you got that little Bible over there? This might interest you. Um, this is the Bible I took with me. God grant that I may never fail my crew and that I may ever fulfil the confidence they place in me. That was my little prayer, my duty to my crew. At the point where we turn onto the runway, we stop. A green light flashes from the caravan, showing that I am the next to take off. We do not use the wireless to talk to the controller, or the Germans would hear us. Well, I suppose the Germans wouldn't literally hear us, but a number of transmissions would give them a warning that something was happening on our side of the channel, and we want to take the Germans by surprise if we possibly can. You listen to Dan Snow's History. I'm talking to Steve Stevens, a man who made a recording of a bombing raid in World War II. I talked to him 75 years later. More after this. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Did the fear not get in the way of you doing your job? Well, if you were the captain of the aircraft, you were too damn busy. There was so much to check, so many things to do. And uh, so it was not an easy thing. You always you had to, uh, well, first of all, you had to remember what approximately what courses you were taking, the heights, the speeds, and also you had to think about the comfort of your crew because if they didn't settle in comfortably, uh, they could be uncomfortable for a whole journey and that might stop their concentration. So it sounds to me like you're too busy with technical things, flying the aircraft, to start thinking, oh, this is the last time I might be in my home country. You don't have those sort of no, things. No, I, I don't. I, at that time... But one night, I remember, we were taking off and taking off when it was still fairly light. And some people were playing cricket as we flew out somewhere near Lincoln. And I thought, well, I suppose that's what we're fighting for, really, to let these people play cricket again. But I thought, lucky devils, they're playing cricket while I'm playing a totally different game. Yeah. But uh, yes, that's what we were fighting for, really, I suppose. And what did you fear most, flak from the ground or enemy fighters? It seemed sometimes when you're going in towards a target, Essen was particular, that the whole place was absolutely alive with gunfire. You could, you could see bursting shells. In fact, you couldn't even see them, you could feel them. That sometimes the aircraft would drop two or three hundred feet. Usually we take little action about flak, unless we can hear it crack or smell it. We have to get to a target on time. And we don't want to dart about all over the sky unless there is real danger. A single searchlight picks up an aircraft on our starboard side. Within a second or two, a huge number of searchlights illuminates this aircraft and gunfire flashes around it as it twists and turns in an effort to escape. We know that every gun in the area is directed at this aircraft. At first it seems it may escape, but suddenly there is a brilliant flash, a red glow and a ball of smoke and we know that at least seven of our men have been blown to pieces. It must have been such a relief finally getting the bombs away. Well, when you got the bombs away, I did say the aircraft leapt forward. You could feel the difference. As the target appears, he gives me instructions. Left, left, steady, 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 bomb doors. I move a lever and say, bomb doors open, and I concentrate on holding the aircraft level and exactly on course. This is a most trying time. If a fighter comes in, we cannot take avoiding action now. An explosion rocks us. An aircraft nearby is blown up. Right, 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 steady, 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 says the bomb aimer. And I put every mental and physical effort into carrying out his orders. Suddenly, I feel the aircraft lift and know our bombs are dropping. Then comes the voice of the bomb aimer. Bombs gone. Did you think about what the bombs were doing on the ground? Oh, yes. I'd, I'd had experience of that from the other end, don't forget. Had my own house bombed. And the, I know the first time I dropped bombs on Germany, I thought, right, that's the beginning. I've got my own back for that lot. That was my 
contribution of the war, and I'll, I'll get uh, Mr. Hitler's contribution. But that's how I felt. I felt a certain feeling of, right, I've spent all this time training, and I've done it at last, and I get this feeling of relief. I thought, right, they've got me on back. Now we start taking some revenge. <laughs> that was really the feeling I had. Looking back after these years, you've got no regrets about dropping... dropping None at all. None at all, no. And uh, the thing that really niggled me was that Butch, uh, that, you know, uh, Butch Harris, of course, was, had a hell of a job to do as a commander of uh, Bomber Command because we were pulled into this. Our casualty rates were very high and we had to... Uh, uh, well, you had to put up with very heavy losses. And you were trying to ask me how I felt about it. I think most people felt, right, the job I've got to do, I'll press on and do it. But the chances of her coming back really were quite small. Some, on some of these raids, I guess, and I suppose, it looks all right on one raid, but you, you multiply that by, we're expected to do 30, and then on one occasion it was cut back to 29, and there were Sterling's, um, which were not quite such good, they weren't such good aircraft, and maneuverability and that sort of thing, and the, they, they were cut back to 20-something for a tour at, at some time, I think. Not quite sure about that, but some of them were. And uh, I think advisedly so, because we've got no survivors otherwise. And tell me about Essen on the way back. What happened to you on the way back from Essen on that particular raid? Oh, well, on, on the way back, um, I actually got <clears throat> attacked by an enemy fighter. And uh, that was... Uh, first of all, I had a head-on attack. And they just winged over the top, and I could actually see the underside of the aircraft went woof over the top. Suddenly, we're galvanised again. A microphone clicks. Tail to skipper, fighter, fighter, port quarter down, range 600. Port, port, go! I push on the rudder, turn the ailerons, put the nose down, open the throttle, and transmit to the gunner, diving port. And when you hear there's a fighter, does it? How, what's that do to you? Do you sort of tense up? Well, I suppose everybody does really. You've got somebody pointing a gun at you and ready to shoot at your mind. That's a natural reaction. But you have to overcome that. And you can, of course, with experience. You get used to it. I dive for the dark part of the sky. And as I'm going down port, the gunners aim for the upper starboard side of the fighter. The fighter blasts a frightening burst of cannon and machine gun fire, some of which I can feel hitting my aircraft. A stream of red and yellow fire passes me, and I seem to be in the middle of it. I felt myself in the middle of this uh, sort of gunfire with bullets, uh, incendiary bullets coming towards me. The crops, of course, were first-class manufacturers, had a lot of experience and that sort of thing. In the First World War, the guns were extremely good, and the, the guns, their machine gunnery was good as well. Maybe slightly better our Browning, but... Uh, we were always aware that you could get hit, and of course that was almost certain to happen. But it didn't, though he got small bits and pieces knocked out of the aircraft, but nothing except that's what I thought. But then, after a while, one of the engines began to play up a bit, fire and misfire, and the, the engine and I had a look, and we realised that at that time, our starboard outer engine, I think it was, had uh, been, uh, got some damage. The cowling was getting hot, so we had to shut that engine down and feather the buttons. 
Now, when you feather the buttons, the, the propeller blades turn through so that they're facing fore and aft rather than facing laterally across the aircraft. And so the engine stops and uh, we pump the fire extinguisher and uh, the, the fire went out. And so that left those three engines coming back. Well, the Lancaster was a beautifully designed aircraft from that point of view. It flew, once you got used to controls, um, landed fairly easily on three engines when I got back. So that was the attack by the enemy fighter, really. And when you landed from each raid, did you feel an enormous wave of relief? Not really, because you still had things to do. You had to taxi the aircraft, you had to unload it, you had to check the bomb load. On one occasion, I had a bomb which had actually frozen in the, air, in the, uh, in the, the bay in which it had been anchored. And I always, when I could, tried to open the bomb doors because it was such a dark nuisance for the ground crew who'd already been working. Sometimes you see, you'd be briefed for a target and then for some reason or other, intelligence would say, no, we can't try that one tonight, try another one. And the next one was tried and that meant that you had to unload some bombs because it wasn't the same bomb load. We go, you always carried the maximum bomb load, but the best of a bomb load depends on petrol and how long you need to fly and that sort of caper. So we had to keep changing bomb loads as well. And sometimes the Grand Coup got very, very exhausted by constantly winding bombs up and down. And tell me how you met your, how you first heard from your wife. And I was actually just at that intermediate stage where I was flying a Manchester and I came to a station called Weekly and called up the usual call sign to land. And to my surprise, a girl's voice answered. So I thought, that's interesting. I haven't heard a girl on the other end before. So I landed the aircraft, went up to flying control. But flying control itself was so full of people. And I saw this girl in the distance. I thought, gosh, she looks a cracker. I'd like to be able to make a date with her. But of course, I had to go away and that was it. Never thought I'd see her again. Later on, I got posted to Scampton. When I came back from Scampton after I'd done a few raids from there, I thought, girl's voice, I recognised that voice. And this time I went up to flying control and tried to make a date with her. Didn't work the first time round, but we did eventually, and that's how we met. And of course I said, well, if I am alive at the end of the year, we could get married. My wife thought that might be a good idea, but she didn't agree at the time. We just left in, in limbo, as it were. And we didn't have much time for courting anyway, because she was often working all night and so was I. Because during the day, bomb, the bombers don't go to sleep. You've got to check them. You still need everything on the bomber checked to make sure that it will stand up to the stress of the next night. But you were alive at the end of the year. At the end of, the, uh, at the end of my tour, I was alive. And uh, so we met in a church not very far from Scampton Airfield. And uh, it was a rainy afternoon. And I said, well, um, what about it sort of thing? And she says, right, uh, if you're of course I can't die if you're dead, but she said, if you're alive by Christmas, we'll get married round about that time. And that's exactly what we did. We both had a coinciding leave and we married then. And of course we were married for very nearly 74 years. We left 74 years, left a few hours really when she died. And uh, it, it was uh, a very, also very interesting. When we got demobbed, I think 
I, I got something like 150 pounds to keep myself and my wife and uh, go to college for 150 pounds, which took a little bit of manipulating. Fortunately, my parents-in-law were very, very good indeed. And they looked after my wife and son when I went to college and then trained to be a school teacher. Where I'd been smashing things down, I was building things up, I thought. So that was a positive side to my career. Could you tell me a little bit about the long, the, the long mission to Northern Italy? Yes, that was the long mission. I've still got a newspaper cutting at the time here somewhere about it. And it was just over, uh, just over 2,000 track miles. And that was just about the limit that we could go on offshore. And so uh, we, we went off on there, uh, we tried, climbed up over the Alps, Southern Alps, and then uh, and we then went round the Bay of Biscay and came back to Cornwall. And of course, by the time we got there, fuel was running very, very short as far as I was concerned. I had actually flown close to another aircraft and he was flying low also, but on three engines. And I tried to contact him. First of all, I couldn't do it by radio because the radio just wasn't good enough. And then I got my Bobby, my sorry, my wireless operator to use the oldest lamp and send Morse code messages. And uh, we asked him, "Are you all right?" And he replied, "Yes, just saving fuel." And that was a very humorous reply, considering he was in such danger. I never did find out what happened to him whether he got back or not. We didn't lose very many aircraft on that raid; only about twelve, I think. And uh, so he was one of the unlucky ones. There was another chap who'd got run a VC on a raid on Augsburg some time before. I think his name was, was it Middle? I don't remember what his name was anyway. But he was also another of the people who didn't come back. And there was a particular friend of mine called Johnny Pickett. He was a New Zealander. We were sergeant pilots together. and. Uh, when, as I said, what a wonderful sergeant's mess we had at Scouts, it really was good. And after briefing, we would pop into separate bathrooms there, we'd shout through the old bathroom, one to the other, about various ideas about tactics, how we'd go, what lights we had to look for and stuff like that all the way back. Very nice chap indeed, but he didn't come back from that raid. And I spoke to how close the companionship became between uh, ground staff and uh, the pilots who were flying, and our sergeant pilots particularly. And when we came back, um, his, his corporal ground crew came up to me and said, uh, Johnny's not back yet. I said, no, I gathered that. And I said, but he may just be late like I am. And uh, later on it was confirmed he wasn't coming back. And this corporal came up to me and said, you know, Steve, we've done every possible thing we could in maintaining that aircraft. He was in tears, actually, because there was that, uh, that sort of friendship between the crew and the, uh, and the pilots, which wasn't quite as deep, I think, when one was commissioned, the other wasn't. What was it like dealing with so many friends who, who, who just wouldn't be there from one day to the next? Well, you know, there wasn't very much you could do about it, really, because you were so busy that before long your mind was totally distracted. And of course, that was almost inevitable. It's like a game of Russian roulette. They'd get captains to briefing. And of course, all captains went together, whether they were commissioned or not. And uh, 
after you look round, you think, well, I wonder why won't be here tonight. Now, some people you could tell, um, there were two people, two pilots particularly, I knew a chap called Gobby and, I, and another chap, and uh, he was had rather large wattles, I suppose you'd call them, coming down through his neck, and you could actually literally see him changing colour to a sort of greenish colour in the course of time. Another chap, Hodgkin's or some, some such name, he um, got so over the top, we were on a bus one night waiting for us to start, and these two were sitting together and they kept sh shoving the bell. And I said, for God's sake, sort of showing off you two, you know, because I happened to be sitting in front. And the driver came back and said, stop buggering about. He said, well, I'll chuck you off the bus. And that stopped them. Well, that wasn't a normal sort of behaviour, but they were both showing signs of stress. And both of them were shot down, actually, before the end of, before they finished their tour. You could tell, looking at some people, that stress was telling. It was, of course, I had that situation with a rear gunner. Uh, I borrowed another, I borrowed another gunner on one occasion as a mid-upper gunner, and this chap said to me, he said, that rear gunner of yours is no good, you know. He says, he, he, he was in the back there and firing ammunition. He said, but it wasn't, it was just going straight out, it wasn't going anywhere. And he said, he didn't make any comment to you. I said, I know he didn't. He's been a bit nervous lately. So, but he said, well, I'm going to report him to the gunnery leader. And he did. And uh, so this broke was out of my crew. But of course, the thing I was scared of, they might say he was lacking in moral fibre, in which case he would have gone through a most dreadful period of getting back, joining the ranks again. But uh, he did it. He was just wafted away. He, did, he didn't actually get badly treated. He wasn't declared to be lacking in moral fibre, but that could happen. So you look back and you think the contribution that you all made was definitely worth it? Well, it was, yes. It, 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 I suppose in a selfish way it said to me, right, I got me own back to start with, and the rest of that was a world I was committing myself to, and so he just pressed on and did it. But I, I will say that uh, there were several people who used to get hit by these uh, uh, suddenly feeling afraid. There was one particular chap I remember, I, was, I won't tell you his name, the good name was Jack, and he was a really one of our rather nice public school characters, beautifully spoken, and he had that nice sort of uh, fair hair, very light moustache, good-looking chap, cricket, that sort of ideal. And when he does about, I suppose, about the same number of rage as I had, he was on my squadron, um, I was walking through Grantham one day, changing stations, I saw this sort of chap sitting on the doorstep, and I knew that chap, I knew him when I was in America. So I said, hello, Jack, how are things do? He says, hey, Stevie, old boy, sorry about that, but I don't think I'm going to survive. I said, don't worry about that. We all have periods like that. Come and have a drink. So he went and had a drink, and he came out and said, I don't feel any better for that. <laughs> and I said, well, don't worry. I said, you'll, you'll get through it. So we took one or two more trips, and you'll be all right. But he wasn't. He, went, he was shot down a, a trip after that, or maybe a couple of trips after that. He didn't come back. And that did happen to some people. They, they just would not admit that they were scared. And what they couldn't have done much about it anyway, because they say, well, go on then, bloody well get on with it, scared or not. You were happy, Mr. Hodgkin. Yes, I was. 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 Yes, I was.
our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Downstairs History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors. That's flying high in the charts. We've got our Medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.